Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, I have uh, been very remiss in not giving shout-outs to my Patreon supporters. I want to remedy that by thanking Karen Bailey, Jeannie Martin, and Sam Noaskuski. I'm sorry, Sam, I just totally butchered your last name. Thank you very much for your support, though, all of you, and if you are enjoying my channel or finding my content useful, educational, and maybe mildly entertaining, then perhaps consider joining me on Patreon, because that kind of love and support is what really keeps this show going and keeps my channel going, for real. Um, all right, we've been taking a few hits from YouTube over these months with all of this crisis and and stuff that's going on, and um, so really, you guys are the ones who are keeping this thing going, and I really want to thank you for that, seriously. I know I say things sometimes that piss people off or rub people the wrong way. That's kind of to be expected in the world of critical thinking. It's critical, you know, and sometimes the thinking goes in directions that are kind of interesting, and maybe it's right, and maybe it's wrong, and maybe through discussion or discourse or just as facts roll out, Things will become more clear and will be better critical thinkers. But anyway, just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Um, I am bringing on a new sponsor onto my channel, um, BetterHelp. Uh, I post this, uh, I think it was about two years ago or so, there was some controversy over the use of this service, questions about the qualifications of the counselors involved. Well, that's all been sorted out to my satisfaction, certainly. I've been in, uh, I've had many conversations with the folks there, and I feel very uh, good about endorsing that service, and it's something that I think now more than ever uh, we could take advantage of and maybe should. So you'll be seeing uh, me, uh, you know, putting some little ads together for that, including in this show. Uh, okay, so that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now, because there were some pretty interesting ones this week. John Kinn. I've been following Scientology for a couple of dozen years now, ever since I read and enjoyed LRH's book, Battlefield Earth, in the mid-80s. I've read many articles over the years about how Scientology is imploding and shrinking. For the last few years now, though, the stories about Scientologists blowing and the numbers going down seem to have dried up. It seems like they have maintained their numbers at between 20 to 25,000 worldwide for years. My question is, do you think it's possible for Scientology to maintain its ideal orgs and other real estate holdings indefinitely with these small numbers of devotees to sell? Do you think it will take another major event like Debbie Cook's email or the anonymous protests to cause another sizable exodus? Thanks for the question, John. And uh, to be brief in answering this, yes, I do think it's possible that the existing base of Scientologists can keep the existing Scientology orgs and network going the way that they are. I think it's pretty top-heavy in terms of income class that, you know, the heavy big donors that, that are giving to the IAS and giving to uh, the, the services at, at the Flag Land Base or on the free winds, where the big pricey services are, are going to keep going. They, seem, they don't seem to be letting up. And there's also, of course, major celebrity figures, not just Hollywood celebrity figures, but artists and other people who are part of Scientology and, and throw their money at it. So, and you've got these, remember, you've got dynasties, you've got, you got legacy, right? You've got families who, you know, have second, third, even fourth gen 
uh, membership now. And that kind of thing just sort of keeps going because it's just the tradition to keep it going. And Scientology, remember also in my other answers where I've discussed this, I've, I mean, it's, 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 um, you know, I, it, it's me wondering about it. It's not necessarily like this is factually how it is, but I believe that, uh, I believe very strongly, that Scientology's really been reduced down to its most core extremist members and those people who surround those extremists, family, friends, business relationships, who can't let go of them or don't want to for some reason and don't want and feel like, well, I know, you know, they're in this group and they're not particularly keen on Scientology, but they don't ever let that be known at all to their Scientologist friend or family member. And, um, because they know that, you know, where their head's at, that if they do, then it's going to be disconnection time. And uh, it's not really so dissimilar to uh, the many times I've described the relationship between my mom and me when I was a Sea Org member and she had already kind of left. Um, I don't think it's even that open. I mean, my mom was pretty open with me that she really wasn't interested in doing Scientology anymore. I think these folks don't even get to say that much. They have to kind of pretend or, you know, take a phone call every now and again or show up at the church every now and again to prove their loyalty. Um, but the, you know, but the extreme guys are still very, very hardcore. They've doubled, tripled, quadrupled down. They've been attacked. They've been argued with, they've been told, they've been shown, and they're just not interested. They just don't care. And that's, I think, what makes up the bulk of what's left of Scientology. So, you know, between the exposing that ex-members have done over the decades, the anonymous movement, the documentaries, the TV shows, and the continued exposure that, you know, that we continue to put out there, um, we've gotten rid of, you know, all the, not just the cream, but, you know, some of the, some of the rest of it too. And you're really left with this hardcore base. That's, that's kind of how I see it. So what will it take to, you know, hit that even harder? Um, I think they come in, I think these sort of things come in waves. So yeah, another Debbie Cook email might be fascinating if it were to come from a major figure within the community, the Scientology community. Um, a celebrity, let's say, or something. I mean, it would be quite something if, you know, somebody like Elizabeth Moss were to, uh, you know, hit the eject button. Or, uh, I mean, I don't know that Michael Pena is, as a celebrity has a, has a ton of, of followers and status within the Scientology world. I think he'd be written off pretty quickly. Um, somebody like Elizabeth Moss would be harder to write off because she's so prominent. She's actually a rising star. And, um, of course, if Tom Cruise were to, you know, say, oh, my God, I, I was in a cult, you know, well, that would implode. That, that would be a really, really big deal in Scientology. But it still wouldn't actually get rid of it. You know, it'd still be around. So, you know, so this, the, uh, you know, there's, there isn't any kind of one and done with this stuff, for sure. And so we just have to kind of keep, you know, plugging away, exposing the abuses, letting people know that, you know, these folks don't have your best interests at heart. And that's kind of, um, that's kind of how these things go. But yeah, I think they do have the resources within their own community right now. And the investments, let's not forget that it's not just Scientology parishioners feeding cash into the system that keeps it going. It is also, there are massive amounts of investments and 
um, things like that, that Scientology, that Miscavige is putting his money into, um, which also creates a whole lot of return all by itself. Remember, this is not so dissimilar to how the um, last year's, um, or was it this year? Anyway, that's that, that flap that came out of the Mormon church where they had, you know, property holdings or, or money in the bank to such a huge amount that they were just living, you know, they were making millions and millions off of just the interest from it. So don't forget about that as well. And there you go. Kevin Zay. Why is it that some people can't just recognize hypnagogia for what it is instead of believing they've been visited by ghosts, abducted by aliens, or had some sort of vision slash premonition? Does it have something to do with people's family history or their culture, or is it more of a psychological issue? Also, how prevalent are alien abduction or visitation stories in Scientology? Okay, hypnagogia. <laughs> now, I might be mispronouncing that for some folks out there. I looked it up, actually, so I, th I think I'm saying it right. It's kind of an odd word, hypnagogia or hypnagogia, um, referred to as uh, also hypnagogic hallucinations. The experience of the transitional state, here's what it is, the transitional state from wakefulness, from being awake, to going to sleep. There's that period in between there where you're not asleep, but you're not totally awake. You're seeing, hearing things maybe that happens during this period. There are hallucinations that exist only up here that, you, that people experience and, um, you know, before they get to sleep. It's also a word that's used to describe the sleep to wakefulness portion, but they also have another word for that, which is uh, hypnopompic. So you can take your choice on that latter part, but um, but I think we'll mostly concentrate on the you know falling asleep part. And Kevin, you asked about people having these various visions and how come they can't just recognize that. Well, this is both cultural and psychological. Uh, culturally, you have a long history across all cultures in the world about dreams, about your mythology or, or mysticism or, or mystic beliefs surrounding dreams and dream state and the significance of them. And we have put a lot of stock in what th these visions and ideas and things we hear and see or feel or sense while we are in these semi-conscious states. Um, and it's, it's fascinating, actually, I mean, the study of all of this. But at the end of the day, what you're really doing is sort of explaining, you know, firing off of, of, of neurons in the brain that produce these very, very realistic sensations. I mean, you know, if you, if you think about it for a second, everything you see, everything you hear, everything that you sense or experience is goes through this mass, this little jelly-like mass in your head called your brain. And when you're really, quote-unquote, hearing something, when there is actually an external stimuli causing you to, causing your ear to vibrate or your eye to experience, you know, the, the light waves going in there and being interpreted, um, that causes certain neurons to fire off that give you the experience that you have. And in these states, dream states, unconscious states, you know, sleep states, whatever, you, the, the same patterns of neurons are firing off the same way as though there was an external stimuli. So for all intents and purposes, these things are, they're recreated physical events that you, that you really do have 
a very, very hard time differentiating between these things, between a, a, you know, a hallucination of the sound of a train, your memory of the sound of a train, and the real sound of a train. I mean, these things can be very, very easily confused, especially, like I said, if a person is going into this semi-conscious sleep state. Um, now, that's about as much expertise as I can bring to this, okay? That's about as far down that rabbit hole that I can speak intelligently about it. But I, the point of what I'm saying is that these things feel real. And for people who don't go looking to the science or going to look to figure out the biology of it or the neuroscience of it or whatever, you know, people aren't that interested. They, you know, if they see or hear or feel something, that, that's it. It was real. I don't need to question anymore. I experienced it, and that's how it is. So, and you see this all the time. So it's so to that degree, it's also psychological, right? Because we don't want to think that we're imagining things. We don't want to think we're out of our mind. We don't want to think all these things that, that would basically lead in the direction of us being insane or not fully rational, right? We're all rational creatures. So, um, you know, so you bump up against, you know, that kind of thing. And of course, then comes the motivated reasoning and, and cognitive dissonance resolution and all the other things that, that come into play when people are trying to sort out reality from fantasy. So, you know, why is it that they just can't recognize it? Well, they either are ignorant of the phenomena as a phenomena. They don't even bother trying to find out what's going on. They just think that what happened to them is real. Or they do know about that, but they're absolutely convinced that because they experienced it in the way that they experienced it, it must be real. And therefore, the demon or ghost or alien or whatever that came, well, that's just how it is. So... You know, and the telling thing here, of course, is lack of physical evidence. You know, if you're going to talk about being taken off by aliens in the middle of the evening or being visited by demons or something, well, then maybe there'd be some kind of psychic, you know, residue or the whole ectoplasm thing. Or, you know, if you went off to, you know, maybe some, if you, if you got dragged out of your house, then maybe there'd be some dirt or some, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There might be some kind of physical evidence. And if there is none at all, well, you can use circular logic to explain why that is and have this little self-contained fantasy, or you can, you know, maybe apply a little critical thinking and think maybe that entire episode just happened all up here, and it didn't have any real physical manifestation, or, or in other words, it didn't really happen. It just, you just imagined it, you know. It's really hard for people to go there, especially when they have super realistic experiences, and you know, especially in sleep states, our brains can be amazing deceivers. I mean, how often have you woken up from a dream in the middle of the night? This has happened to me so many times. And you're just absolutely positive that what was happening to you in your dream that you were just having, nightmare even, was absolutely real, was happening to you in real time. You know, I've woken up sometimes from some nightmares, especially some of the, you know, getting, waking up back in the Sea Org kind of dreams, where I was positive that I was back in the Sea Org, or I was being chased by the monster, or I was shot, or whatever it was that was happening. It felt so real. And, you know, you wake up, and I was just like, I'd be like, oh, thank God, that was just a dream. 
oh my god you know like i thought I, I thought it was all over i thought my life was ruined i thought it was the end you know it seemed very real so you know and and, and knowing everything i know I, you know when you're in that place you know there's no questioning it so that's kind of why so it's a mixture of these things uh, as far as your your question goes kevin but um but it's really something, isn't it? It's I just for me, I find it fascinating now because I'm kind of into the neuroscience of it, and I'm just amazed at how we we can do that to ourselves. Um, and it's really only very, very recently, you know, that we've started thinking about this whole thing in a very, very different light and stopped lending these hallucinations, you know, the 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 credence of reality. Um, prior to you know, scientific enlightenment, psychology you know, age thinking, those things were real. You didn't question any of that stuff. That was real. Those angels that were visiting you, those demons that were visiting you, that happened. You know, that was as real as this table is real to those people at that time. So, you know, so we're really kind of new on on trying to figure out what's what else is going on there. Anyway, as far as Scientology goes, um, Alien abductions or visitation stories. The funny thing about this, and Aaron and I have have noted this in the past, is uh, in, in talking about this this particular thing, is it's funny how in Scientology, um, when somebody started talking that way in auditing sessions, talked about how L. Ron Hubbard had visited them, or aliens, or the Markavians, or whatever, you know, had come by in their sleep, or you know, something like that. Um, they get pushback. They, you know, the, the, they would tend to not be believed. Hmm. This didn't come up often. This doesn't. This isn't socially discussed that often in, this, in the Scientology circles. Um, and and I'm talking about official Scientology believing these stories. Scientologists, in and amongst themselves, depending on how credulous they are, how deeply indoctrinated they are, and and their their background and mindset about aliens and and visitations and abductions and stuff like that, um, they might gain some traction, you know, with their Scientology friends. But um, I never once heard a Scientologist claim to have actually been abducted by aliens. Okay, let's, let's, uh, I should clarify what I'm talking about. I've never heard about a Scientology alien abduction story. What I have heard many times is Scientologists claiming to have awareness of or going exterior and seeing or, or being aware of aliens visiting the planet or having or manipulating affairs on planet Earth or um, something like that, right? Like they're having an, a, a modern present time awareness of alien presence somehow either hovering in a ship over over the the church. I heard that, right? I, I heard a guy one time tell me he was in an auditing session and he sensed that they were being watched and he looked up and the auditor looked up and they both, you know, kind of looked at each other and the and the guy said, Aliens, man, they're watching us right now. And the auditor's like, yeah, okay, yeah, you know, writing it all down. And the guy's like, up, oh, they flipped off. They they flicked, flickered away. They took off. They sensed us sensing them. Ooh, the aliens are watching us. I mean, I actually had a, a serious, heartfelt conversation about that exact 
incident with it, with that Scientologist one time. So those are the kind of conversations that you might have within Scientology about this kind of thing, at least from my experience. And I hope that that is somewhat interesting to you. Uh, there you go, Kevin. Thanks for asking. Hey, everyone. I want to introduce you to a new sponsor for my show, which I think is a vital service that especially now is something we might all want to avail ourselves of, and that is BetterHelp. If you are feeling anxious or sad or just want someone to talk to, who better than a licensed professional therapist? I know in the past there was some controversy with this, but that's been addressed, and I'm happy to endorse this service now. BetterHelp is a professional service which will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in your area. This is actually a worldwide service, not just here in the U.S., you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions at your convenience instead of having to wait on theirs. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. I endorse this service, but check it out for yourself. Visit their website and read their testimonials. And if you sign up using my special URL, you'll get 10% off your first month. Look them up at betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. Pretty easy to remember, right? That's betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. Sign up today. Tony Nelson. When Pat Broker was doing his speech during Hubbard's memorial event, he talked about a process that Hubbard came up with to prepare for dropping the current body. He did not give very much detail about it, but said that it would be coming. Do you have any knowledge of this process, or do you know of anybody that does? My guess is that there are no substantial levels beyond OT8, including this preparing for death process. I would love to see Pat Broker come forward like Mike Rinder has. If Pat was honest, I think he would have some very interesting information about Hubbard's final years. Do you think he will ever talk? I am guessing he never will. Thanks for the question, Tony. Um, this is pretty interesting stuff, actually, this whole, you know, preparing for death thing. But the truth is that, no, there are not any processes for that. And the reason that I know that is not just from my own experience, but because a senior case supervisor, in fact, the senior case supervisor for the Western United States um, years ago, this was uh, back when it was Griffey Blythe, she actually wrote uh, a, a thing about that. There was a, um, I think somebody had died or somebody of prominence or something, or there was some, you know, rumor line or something going around in, 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 the, in the Pacific base in Big Blue about this kind of thing, you know, about dropping the body or preparing to die or something. And she actually wrote this, this uh, uh, dispatch, this sort of, it's not really a formal issue, just sort of this thing from her office saying, 
there is no such thing. There's there's no process on, on this. You know, we don't do that. We try to make people comfortable. We provide assists or we provide some kind of, you know, the, the physical um, uh, comfort, you know, something that will provide some, some physical relief from pain or suffering. But as far as preparing a person to, you know, go off and, and get another body or something, there, there isn't really any formal process for that, that that she was aware of. And she was the senior case supervisor for the Western United States. So she was a very highly trained, well-educated Scientologist who had spent decades auditing and overseeing the auditing of other people. So I'm pretty sure if there was something like that, she would have known about it. And she said specifically that there isn't, which is why I can answer the question with such certainty. <laughs> Um, as far as uh, Pat Broker goes, I couldn't agree with you more, but I'm pretty sure that if he had any, you know, you, I don't know if you're aware, but Pat Broker was was followed by two private investigators for a decade, more, 15 years, 20 years. Uh, they were paid millions of dollars by the Church of Scientology over this time to just follow him around. One wonders if he was aware of that or not, but certainly once Tony Ortega broke the story that that had happened because these two PIs, you know, kind of flipped on the on the church because they were sick and not getting paid after a certain period of time, and Tony found out about it, right? And then for a brief period of time, they were speaking up before they the, the church wrangled them back in. Um, pretty sure Pat would have seen that. You know, pretty sure he would have become aware of that if he hadn't already known about it. And I'm pretty sure that kind of thing, like if, if you if you think that David Miscavige is so keenly interested in you that he's having you followed everywhere you go, every place you, everything you do for years, you know, this is somebody who is got his eye on you directly and specifically. So he's probably not super keen on um, creating more trouble for himself than that. By speaking up, probably probably a perfectly nice guy, but um, but it doesn't seem to have any interest at all in exposing anything about Hubbard's final days, and that really sucks because he's the only one at this point who could do it. Uh, and there you go, James Hacker. Do you think that in this day and age that Scientology helps or hinders a celebrity's ability to find work? I cannot think of anything that celebrities such as Kirstie Alley or Ann Archer have done in the past decade, at least nothing notable. This includes the likes of Marisol Nichols, Giovanni Ribisi, etc. Danny Masterson has been notable as of late, but it's certainly not for his roles or talent. Hey, thanks for the question, James. My honest opinion of this is that I don't think at this point Scientology plays a factor in somebody getting jobs in Hollywood pro or con. I don't think Scientology really has any pull or influence, and I think that the influence they did have was over-exaggerated, um, even at the, even its heyday. However, um, that's the church's influence. I am not necessarily referring to Tom Cruise's influence. He, as an individual, has gone way out of his way 
to let other Scientologists know that they are on, you know, being watched and they better represent Scientology and they better be good, you know, role models and all that kind of thing. And they better start talking about some Scientology. Well, that, you know, we heard that story from Mark Headley some years ago. And, um, and, and, but since then, we also know why Tom Cruise had to, whoa, there on, on, you know, being so vigorously enthusiastic about it. And he had to shut the hell up. Other celebrities who were Scientologists clearly got the message from watching that happen or learning about it and are not talking about Scientology. And it's very, very clear that they're only allowed uh, statements on the matter are read a book. It's fine for me. You're a bigot if you attack my race, it, my, my religion. And that's about it. That's all they'll say about it. They're very, very hush-hush. You know, you want to know about it, read a book. Well, that's nice and safe for them, and they don't have to answer any questions about it, and they don't have to deal with any, you know, difficulties or unpleasantness about it. But I don't think behind the scenes it's really a factor. And to be honest with you, I really don't think it even should be. Um, you know, I mean, I've got my thing about Tom Cruise as an individual, but religious discrimination is never a good thing. And any more so than, you know, uh, racial discrimination or cultural discrimination, you know, just only based on that, you know, here's your label. Now get out of here because you suck. You know, I, at the end of the day, no human being really deserves to be treated that way, that, that simplistically. And, you know, so, um, so, I, you know, so I'm okay with that. Um, I'm still not going to watch their movies. <laughs> <laughs> but we can see in the rising star of Elizabeth Moss that Scientology's not getting in the way of her career at all. Michael Pena still has a career. He's still doing fine. The thing I wanted to comment on with this question is I think Scientology destroys them as individuals. I think that's where their careers tank. You know, not because I don't think the career the career tanks because they're a Scientologist. I think they tank. Because they're Scientologists. Because, you know, being a long-term Scientologist is detrimental to your mental health. It just is. It's not, it's not my opinion that it's that way. I guess, it, I guess it could be an opinion. But it's, you know, we, we see it over and over and over again. Uh, I've lived it. I've experienced it. I've dealt with hundreds, thousands of people who have, you know, said the same thing. Or, or, or some variation of that. So I think the reason why you see, you know, people's careers sort of peak and 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 then, you know, in science, in the world of Scientology is because they just kind of lose it. Um, I don't mean they all go nuts. I'm not talking about insane asylum level insanity or something. But, you know, Scientology messes with you and it messes with your head in significant ways. I don't know how else to describe it simply, uh, you know. Uh, well, it, it, you got my whole channel to look at as to all the ways it does that. Um, and I think that's I think that's what goes on with these guys. I mean, and Kirstie Alley is a great example because she's very active and vocal on Twitter. And you can see what goes on in her head and the sort of stream of consciousness uh, Twitter feed that she's got sometimes. And it's a little loony, you know, and not to mention the uh, OSA Twitter accounts, you know, the Ed Parkins and and the Scientology stuff that they that they throw out. I mean, it's just you read it, and you just go, whoa. And that's the kind of stuff that's that that goes on in Scientologists' heads all the time. So not a great place to to be, you know, not a very not a very long-term stable place to be. There's a lot of things that are introduced into your thinking as a Scientologist that cause you to be narcissistic, 
paranoid, conspiracy-minded. Um, you get a very bizarre view of the world as a Scientologist. And um, yeah, so, so that's what happens to the celebrities as much as it happens to any other public staff or Sea Org member Scientologist. Good fella. How can one recognize an active Scientologist but who does not want to be recognized at, let's say, a wedding where people meet new people? I believe they can be deceiving when necessary in their optics. Hey, thanks for the question. Um, there isn't any real checklist of characteristics of a Scientologist as such. They come from all walks of life, all cultures, all parts of the world. So it's a pretty diverse group of people. I mean, mostly, mostly in the white demographic, but... Um, but there's still tons and tons of diversity in there in terms of uh, culture, background, language even. So that those are not markers of a Scientologist. The things that, uh, the only things I could recommend watching for um, that might indicate you're talking to a Scientologist are one, they will probably go out of their way to look you directly in the eye the entire time they're talking to you. They're very big on eye contact. It's called confronting you in Scientology, and it's a, it's a very important concept for them. Um, also, some of the word choices. You will hear um, they're really big on communication, and of course, that's that's nice. But the Scientologies that comes out, um, they might use the word uh, affinity. That's a word that you don't hear people use very often. Scientologists use it all the time. So vocabulary choices might be part of the picture. If um, if you you know if you catch those things, if you say, "Oh, what was that?" or "Oh, what do you mean by that?" If they you know if there's some kind of unusual vocabulary being thrown around, they generally speaking won't slip full Scientology or Dianetics words into regular conversation if they're trying to be subtle. They won't say, you know, oh, that was just an engram, or oh, it sounds like he's got an ARC break or something. You know, they're not going to say that kind of thing. Um, but they might almost say that kind of thing, you know, like they might slip up a little bit. And if you see indicators of that, then you might know there's, there's more there going on under the hood than you might, than you might think. But, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, it's not hard for Scientologists to disguise the fact that they're Scientologists, um, so, you know, I don't, like I said, I wish I had a, you know, a hot tip for you on this, but I, I really don't. And it is now time for Flash Answers. B. Dazzle. Does the Church of Scientology offer the OT levels to members of the Nation of Islam? If so, have you heard uh, how members of the NOI react to the Xenu story since the NOI has a similar story surrounding the Jakob character? I believe that they are now offering the OT levels to select members of the Nation of Islam who can afford it, of course, because most of them can't. At least that was my experience when I was in Minnesota and Los Angeles, a few other orgs where NOI members were coming and were doing the Dianetics work. That was about as much as, as a lot of them could afford. Um, it, it, I mean, I'm not trying to make some blanket statement about the NOI's economic class. I'm just telling you what I experienced. Um, the leaders of the NOI, of course, don't have that problem. They're rolling in money, and they spend it on Scientology. I know Tony Muhammad has. 
Um, originally, the original idea with it was that they were not going to be doing anything other than Dianetics. And it was only if they reached as an individual for more Scientology that we would even like talk to them about it. We, we weren't even supposed to sell them or talk to them about anything but Dianetics. So how that's organically sort of rolled out and evolved since then, I, I can't say entirely because I um, kind of left after that really got going. But um, from what I've seen in the literature, you know, put out by Scientology and the NOI, um, they are there are some people moving up to that. But I have we have yet to see a single defector from the NOI. Certainly, nobody who's gotten up to the level of the OT levels to discuss the NOI mythology versus the Hubbard mythology. So, I can't really speak to that. Papa John sixteen. Does it bother you to talk about the Church of Scientology after spending so many years as a member? No, it does not bother me to talk about Scientology anymore. Um, actually, I don't know that it ever bothered me to talk about Scientology. If anything, I've been keen to talk about it. Um, I think at this point, I'm I'm only um, you know less interested in it because I've talked about it so much, and I've I, and I've like exhausted you know most of my reservoir of knowledge about it <laughs> you know it's only taken me you know I had 1200 1400 hours <laughs> of downloading information to you guys on my channel to do it but it's all you know a lot of stuff is there and and even having said that there's still more content that needs to be produced so um so no I'm not I'm not sick of it as uh, or or bothered by talking about it Beria the Church of Scientology is not considered a religion in Canada, but I do believe they are a registered nonprofit. Other than the occasional article about them not paying property taxes, not much makes the media here. How deep are Scientology's roots in Canada? Have they tried coups here similar to Operation Snow White? Scientology's always had a fairly minimal presence in Canada, really not much of a footprint at all. But you might be interested to know that even during Operation Snow White, there were activities going on in Canada. They were trying to go into and get the documents out of the government files and clean them, sanitize them, if you will, of anything bad about L. Ron Hubbard. And that included in the Canadian government, too, as far as I understand. So you can check the history on that. But they have been working on those kind of operations in Canada as much as they have been or, uh, you know, at least to some degree up there uh, as they did in the United States and elsewhere. And of course, the reason for that is because Scientology is the same everywhere it exists. Same policy, same dogma, same headspace. So same bad acts, you know. Uh, and that's that says I really that's, I really don't know a whole lot more about Scientology in Canada, um, you know, in terms of its history. But I do know that much, so that's what I can say. Okay, and that is our show for this week, everybody. Thank you very much for coming around and watching me babble on here and answer your questions. I hope you enjoyed this and found it mildly entertaining. <laughs> and um, thank you again for your viewership and your support. And um, I hope you will check out my podcast that I did this, this week with uh, Dr. Tim Sledge. Fascinating conversation. And I hope you'll join us on Wednesday for our critical call-in show, uh, critical conversations, rather, I should say. 
uh, where I am joined by my beautiful wife, Melissa, right here to take your calls and talk to you directly. And I would really love to do that. I hope that you guys will check that show out and will call in and talk to us. Um, I think there's so many things to talk about these days, and we want to hear what you have to say about it. That being said, there's my plugs. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.